0: As we transition from chapter 4 to Galatians chapter 5, we kind of are segueing now from the second section of Galatians to the final third section of the book. In our initial outline, we established that the book itself can be divided into three sections. Chapters 1 and 2 simply stated as Paul's personal experience with grace. Chapters 3 and 4, Paul's doctrinal instruction about grace. And now chapters 5 through 6, Paul's practical application of grace. Galatians 4 left us really with two overarching ideas that now in chapter 5, Paul will build upon and begin to apply to our lives. In the latter half of the chapter, Paul will build upon the idea introduced in the previous chapter that myself. What we would call the flesh, and God's spirit cannot coexist in harmony and the human life. that these two things, the flesh and the spirit, will always be in tension, that they will war, fight with one another. Which is why, as Paul said at the end of the chapter, it's essential that we cast out the bondwoman. her son. And in the latter half of the chapter, he'll kind of expound upon how it is that we accomplish such a task of casting out the flesh. But before he gets to this, in the first half of the chapter, Paul will first expound on what it means to be a child of freedom. Now, we've talked a lot about freedom without really defining what that exactly means from a scriptural perspective. We know that freedom, if you've been with us in our travels through Galatians, is the result of the gospel of grace. The fact that I have been given God's favor through what Jesus did on the cross for me, that it's a favor I don't have to earn. It's a favor I don't have to maintain. It's a favor given to me that I can enjoy so much different than the law that yields bondage, I get to walk in grace that produces a freedom in my life. Now now note, Paul closes Galatians 4, verse 31, if you'll look there for a moment, by boldly declaring this statement. He says, so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And then in Galatians 5, verse 1, he builds upon, he begins to apply this thought by saying, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And building upon the theology concerning grace, Paul transitions now. It's that word, therefore. It's a good indicator. Anytime you see a therefore, you should ask yourself, what's what's it there for? Because Paul's segueing. he's building upon a previous thought and in this instance as he transitions he's not just referencing any type of freedom he's referencing a specific type of freedom a specific type of liberty look at it he says stand fast in the liberty by which christ has made us free and note this definite article the the liberty It implies something distinctive, something particular, a particular type of liberty. So, our question this morning, where we'll start, is what liberty is Paul referring to? And I think that there's three clues from our text. First, Paul is referring to a liberty that doesn't originate in country, or constitution, or for that matter, you but rather he's mentioning here, referencing a liberty, the liberty provided by Jesus. Look at it again. He says, the liberty by which Christ has made. This is a liberty Christ has made. The source of this freedom resides in Jesus and the work that Christ did to set us free. The second clue is this reality that Paul is referencing a liberty, not just provided by Jesus, but if you notice, a liberty that exists regardless of your perspective. Now, how do we grab that? It says, Christ has made us free. Like, that's a definitive statement. Like, Paul is describing a freedom that is sure, a freedom that is solid, a freedom that really is not up for debate, whether you're walking in it or not, Christ has made you free. Regardless of perspective, every Christian has been set free through the work of Jesus on Calvary. And then there's a third clue. By the very implication of Paul's exhortation to stand fast in the liberty, it's clear that while this, ex- this liberty exists for the believer, that there are forces trying to snatch this particular liberty away. It's why Paul follows that up by saying, stand fast and do not. It's a command. Don't be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. It's liberty provided by Jesus. It exists regardless of perspective, and there are forces trying to take this liberty away from you. Understand, Christian, believer, follower of Jesus, that it is entirely possible for someone set free to revert again to bondage? Or why would Paul provide the exhortation itself? Paul invokes here a very powerful image saying stand fast. And the Greek, this word, it, it means to keep one standing or keep one's footing. In, in more of a modern terminology or vernacular, we would say dig in. Like sink your cleats in, get yourself braced, don't allow yourself or anyone to take this liberty From you, hold fast, dig in. So it's with this in mind that there are really two things that Christ has liberated us from. First, Christ has freed you, he's freed me from the resulting bondage of moral expectations. And if you've been with us at all in our travels through Galatians, this rings true. Like Paul has spoken extensively about this notion. Whereas the law, and you can say all religious systems, reaching up to God, bind a human being to a merit-based process that drives us to earn God's favor and then work hard to maintain God's favor, grace. Grace alone, grace provided by Jesus. It does the opposite. It doesn't bind us, it doesn't drive us, it sets us free from this expectation by declaring you and I to be permanently right with God apart from our involvement. Like why the law enslaves me to the pursuit of always trying to measure up, grace removes these shackles. It removes that expectation I don't have to measure up. And thus it allows me the opportunity to just enjoy a relationship with Jesus. No strings attached. And so we understand that when we're talking about the liberty that Christ has given us, that it exists regardless of perspective, the liberty that someone and some people try to snatch away, it's the fact that Jesus has set us free from a resulting bondage of moral expectations. But there's something else that this liberty does. Secondly, Jesus has freed us from the resulting bondage of what I'm just gonna define as self-rule. Sadly, as Americans, it's so easy for our political context and traditional understanding of freedom to actually warp our comprehension of what Paul is actually referring to when he uses this word liberty. As Americans, liberty rings true. Liberty does something with our hearts. like We're a nation built in liberty. For many, liberty, if you were to define it, would be simply this. And I know this will probably be a little bit more libertarian, but you'll go with me. Liberty can be defined as the freedom to do what I want to do as long as it doesn't harm someone else. Like in our minds, we think of freedom. I can do what I want as long as I don't harm someone else. Because if I harm someone else, you know, the government exists to make sure that doesn't happen. So I'm free. I can do what I want, don't tell me what to do. I'm free to do that, as long as I'm not hurting someone. Deist Thomas Jefferson famously wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. Now consider the fundamental flaw in this notion. Does the liberty to live my life however I want and the, quote, pursuit of happiness, does that actually make me free? You see, the truth is that it doesn't. Like, understand, no one reading this letter to the Galatians in the first century Roman world would have ever in their wildest imaginations processed liberty as living life void of, of authority. Like there was no such thing. The Galatians rightly understood when Paul writes about liberty, something we forget. And that is the fact that everyone has a master. In America, you might be free to pursue whatever makes you happy. But that in and of itself is not liberty. The founding fathers specifically sought Limited government, not with the aim of no government, but in the pursuit of self-governance. Instead of a king ruling from on high, dictating to every man what he could or couldn't do, our founders, they wanted a system where each man was free to rule himself. Truth is that Jefferson should have written something like this we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, the freedom to govern oneself and pursue what makes him happy. It's not liberty. Sure. While living in America with the protections of a constitution and a bill of rights, it does make us free from a tyrannical government seeking to oppose its will on our everyday lives, at least at one point it did. In the end, in the end, the freedom to do whatever we want in the pursuit of whatever makes us happy does not yield liberty, but this is what it yields, servitude to these very pursuits. What many fail to recognize is that liberty as Jefferson described, doesn't guarantee freedom. Not the freedom of the masses. When all it accomplishes is the enthronement of each man to pursue what makes him happy. That's not liberty. Instead, the only thing liberty in this context actually accomplishes is the enslavement of all men to that simple pursuit. And here's why that's the case. This might sound controversial, but I'll explain it. Man is not conditioned to rule himself, but to be ruled. That's a biblical concept. That man is not conditioned, not created to rule himself, but is fundamentally conditioned to be ruled, the Bible. It clearly states that while man was given dominion over all of creation, what was the one thing he wasn't given dominion over? Himself. God was over man and man over creation. But notice that while Satan's lie in the garden was that man could be his own God, remember? You eat of this fruit and you'll be what? As wise as God. God's holding out on you. You can be your own God. You don't need God. That's the lie of the garden. And while that exists, what actually happened when man ate the fruit? Did he become his own God? No, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 25, Paul says that man exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. Though it's true, you do have a measure of control over who or what it is that sits on the throne of your life. Don't be mistaken. You cannot sit there. The idea of self-rule, it's a facade. And this is what makes liberty in our American context so misleading. Though we've been given the freedom to self-govern, the irony is that we'll always advocate the throne to someone or something other than ourselves, specifically whatever it is providing happiness. It's why the idea of true liberty is a mirage. Just look around at our culture. Though it's true we're free to generally do what we want, would you honestly say that the majority of Americans are walking in liberty or mired in some form of bondage? Like, honestly. The majority of people living the American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are not free, nor are they happy. In actuality, they're empty. And miserable, Which is not a surprise when you realize that whatever it is you're pursuing to provide happiness, you'll in turn enthrone and bound yourself to serve. I'll say that again because it's an essential concept. Whatever it is you're pursuing to provide you happiness, you'll in turn enthrone and bound yourself to serve that thing. This is why pursuing happiness and money or materialism, or fame, egotism. I mean, we are a generation consumed with self, right? Like our whole definition of fame has changed. Like it used to be that to be famous, you had to do something. The Kardashians have done nothing. (laughs) They do nothing. Like they're not talented. They don't sing, they don't write, they're not producing art. It's just trash and selfies. It's the ultimate demonstration of egotism. And why do people pursue that? Why do you post pictures of yourself, which, by the way, are always fake? Because you'll never post a bad picture of yourself on your Facebook page or your Twitter feed. You'll always post the, 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 the image of you you want the world to see, something that is often fake. Like if it was real, man, our Social media would look radically different, right? It's always a picture of what I want to put out there. Why? Because it's tied to me, to self, egotism. Our culture is bound to sex, enslaved to sex, hedonism. So many people are pursuing the body as a source of happiness, selfism, or charity altruism, or vice, sensationalism. And not only do these things fail, not only do they prove vain, but in the end, all they accomplish is this. They bind you to further and deeper pursuits. They enslave you. Like these things, the things we pursue for happiness prove to be very wicked masters. Let me give you an example if you need to to shed a few LBs right, for health purposes, I totally get that, right? I mean, health reasons, it's probably not God's will for you to have diabetes because you're fat. If you have diabetes because it's a genetic predisposition, like that's another thing, but like if, if you're just a slob and not taking care of yourself and your health is, you should do something about that, okay? So that aside, if your pursuit of body, working out, diet, exercise, is not motivated for health purposes, but is instead based in deeper insecurities about the way you look. Thus, losing weight is not not about health, but happiness. Isn't it true that that's a difficult thing, that that's a trying master? that if you're pursuing these things to feel good about you, about yourself, to feel happy about your body, like that is a wicked taskmaster. Like it enslaves you to the gym, it enslaves you to the diet. It's a trap, really, it's a trap. Because even if let's say you happen to achieve the bikini body you desire, it doesn't stay that way. Like, you finally get there, and you're like, I'm looking great, and then winter comes. (laughs) Like, if you finally achieve the look you want, do you just walk away? Can you walk away? No, what has to happen? As a matter of fact, you have to work harder. It's the way your body works. You have to change up your exercise i speaking of these things like I do any of them. But, <laughs> but in theory, I've read, right, <laughs> that these are the things you have to do to maintain that look. But it enslaves. It holds you captive. Fellas, if it's like, man, my pursuit is the six pack and pectorals, man. I want to take that shirt off and be rocking. Six packs always transition to a keg. That's a natural, that's what naturally happens. No one ever stays at a six pack without really working hard. And if you don't keep working, you get those pecs, you're like, yeah, I'm ripped. If you don't keep pumping iron, those pecs transition to moobs. (laughs) They don't stay that way. Now, I say that in a a bit of comedy and, and some brevity, but don't miss the deep point that needs to be made. Whatever you're pursuing for happiness, you enthrone and enslave yourself too. You're not free. You're not free at all. With this in mind, you need to understand this morning that Christian liberty, Christian liberty, the liberty Paul is writing about, it isn't freedom from governance. It's not even freedom from servitude, which doesn't exist at all because you're made to be ruled. Christian liberty instead describes life under the enthronement of a worthy king by the name of Jesus. You see, the liberty we've been given through Christ, through his grace, is not the freedom to now do whatever I wanna do, which only leads me back to bondage, but is instead the opportunity to finally live according to the way I've been designed. Man back under his creator and not enslaved to creation. You see, in the end, the fundamental similarities between religion and the notion of self-rule is that both fail to follow through on their promises. Both use a lie to lead humanity, not into freedom, but into bondage. Not only is it impossible, friend, for you to be your own God, and not only is it impossible for you to do anything to earn God's favor, but real liberty is found and only one thing absolute surrender to Jesus. This is the point Paul's making. And this morning, understand these other approaches, religion and self rule, they will only lead to emptiness. They will only lead to frustration. They will only lead to dis- destruction. <laughs> it's why Solomon, King Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. He wrote this in chapter two, verse 17. He said, after pursuing all the world had to offer for happiness, he said, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For all is vanity and grasping for the wind. This is why, friend, Paul says, it's why he's pleading here, stand fast, dig in. To what? the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Verse two, indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Now, before we unpack like, what Paul's communicating, it's important that maybe we first define and maybe discuss circumcision. Simply because if you're new this morning or church is kind of a new thing and you're coming in and like, boom, pastor's talking about circumcision, that's weird. Like that's kind of a strange transition from liberty to circumcision. So I just, for a moment, I wanna, I wanna define circumcision. According to Urban Dictionary, Quote, circumcision is a surgical procedure that removes the male's foreskin. (laughs) That's pretty accurate. That's not what you expected, right, from Urban Dictionary. It's not what I expected. You were thinking it was going to go a different direction, right? So I'll take it there. Um, a, a A better, like, illustrative picture for circumcision, in case you're still not sure, circumcision is a surgery that turns a man's turtleneck into a crew cut. Okay, we can move on now. <laughs> Welcome to Calvary 316. We're so glad you're here this morning. I'll be meeting with the elders probably after the service. Anyway. Circumcision. Circumcision, it's, it's actually a really interesting uh, study from a scriptural perspective. Like, it is found and the law of Moses. In Leviticus 12, verses 2 and 3, we're told that if a woman has conceived and bears a male child, then she's unclean for seven days, and in the days of her customary impurity, she'll be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his this newborn son, uh, foreskin, shall be circumcised. That's the only mention of circumcision in the law, which is, to me, actually fascinating. Because it's important to understand as a concept It existed before the law. Circumcision as God uh, institution, something God instituted, it exists before the law, predates the law. As a matter of fact, you find it originally in Genesis chapter 17 when God appears to Abraham, and this is what he says. He says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Now understand, and this is what the majority of people I think get totally wrong about circumcision. Circumcision is not the sign of the Mosaic law. It's not about the law at all. Rather, circumcision, according to Genesis 17, was a physical reminder of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, which we've already talked about in Galatians, which was what? Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Believed what? Believed in a savior, that God would provide a savior through his lineage. This is what circumcision was instituted to remind humanity of, a coming savior. In Romans 4, verse 11, Paul would later write that Abraham, quote, received the sign of circumcision, which by the way was 14 years after he was already declared righteous, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while he was still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them. While the Jews had come to see circumcision as an external act that brought with it God's acceptance and entry into the lineage, the family of Abraham, which is why in, in the context and why Paul's bringing it up is that these Judaizers, these false teachers that had come from Jerusalem to Galatia peddling a gospel distortion, they wanted the Gentiles who had accepted Jesus to now be circumcised. But the reality is, is that circumcision represented the exact opposite reality the Judaizers were peddling. David Guzik, one of my favorite commentators, he remarked, quote, circumcision is a cutting away of the flesh and an appropriate sign of the covenant for those who should put no trust in the flesh. Furthermore, it's interesting that in both its institution in Genesis 17 and then again when it's reiterated in the Levitical law, that the procedure of circumcision was to occur, what? On the eighth day, following a child's birth. And according to biblical numerology, the number eight represents something interesting. It represents new beginning, the start of a new week, n- new order, a new creation. The number eight can, rec- can signify new birth, being born again. See, circumcision did not represent the law of Moses. But instead, it was an act that physically represented one's spiritual faith and a coming promise, a coming Savior. Faith in a Savior, as illustrated by Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, on and on and on and on. All men declared righteous, declared men of faith before the law ever was interested or introduced. Like It also explains why circumcision was instituted after Abraham's mistake with Hagar that produced a work of the flesh. It comes right after that. It's as though God's saying, your unbelief, your acting out in the flesh has produced a terrible consequence. A work of the flesh it doesn't honor God. And so I'm instituting this thing called circumcision to remind you what? That cutting the flesh does nothing but that you need a savior, that that's the remedy. And it's with this understanding that we begin to understand, we begin to unpack why Paul would now say to a group of uncircumcised Gentiles, quote, men who have accepted Jesus as their savior. Okay, that's the context. Paul says, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing And then he says, every man who becomes circumcised is then a debtor to keep the whole law. Paul's point is that since the Savior that circumcision pointed to had already come in the person of Jesus, partaking in a physical act, circumcision, that represented faith in a coming Savior, it would now not represent faith, but unbelief in Jesus. The Savior's already come. Why are you participating in this act Concerning a coming promise, when the promise has been delivered. It explains why Paul then says, Christ profits you nothing. What good is a savior if you're still looking for a savior as representative of this act of circumcision? Paul's literally saying, (coughs) if you circumcise yourself now, Christ is not able to assist you. It's like Paul's saying, It's like he's pulling out his hair. Who cares about faith and a coming savior? When the savior's already come, continuing his logic, Paul then reasons that if Jesus is rejected as the savior, making everything he did of no practical effect, all the act of circumcision accomplishes is placing that person back under what? If I'm not gonna be under a savior, then I'm back under the law. Why? Because the law exists to accentuate my need for a savior. So if I'm not looking to Jesus as my savior, I'm under the law. And now I'm a debtor to keep the whole law. Verse four, you have become estranged from Christ. Or or literally, Christ has become of no effect unto you. You who attempt to be justified by law. And then he utters this very heavy phrase, you have fallen from grace. The flow of Paul's argument here is rather simple. Rejecting Christ as your savior, it defaults your justification away from being a manifestation of God's grace as demonstrated in Jesus' death and back unto your efforts and attempts to earn God's favor using the law, which never work. And using this phrase, you have fallen from grace. Grace. He's not using this in the sense that that we would often talk about falling from grace. That's actually a a phrase used in our culture. If you see a politician who's super popular, he does something stupid, you know, his poll numbers collapse, you would say, man, he's fallen from grace. Like, he's fallen from grace. Like, Like, we would use that type of terminology to describe someone who did something dumb and as a result, there's been this fall, this slide. And yet Paul, in using this phrase, and this is important, he is not speaking of moral failure. That's not what he means by you have fallen from grace, but is instead in context, describing the person who is no longer trusting in Jesus as savior for their justification. And I don't wanna get sidetracked like into this debate concerning eternal security or once saved always saved or that type of thing. But I do wanna highlight just a couple things that we see from this passage. And, 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 And notice what Paul isn't saying here. Like Paul is not saying a Christian can miss heaven if they fall into sin. He's not saying that. You can't extrapolate that from this passage. Logically speaking, in context, there is nothing you can do to lose your salvation any more than there was something you could could do to earn it. If I couldn't earn it, I can't lose it, right? I mean, you're not saved by your good conduct. Therefore, you're not unsaved by your immoral conduct. There's nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of Christ. But look at what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, if your faith is not placed in Jesus as your savior, what are the results of that? Christ's work on the cross and his grace are of no effect for you. They don't help you. They exist. It's a liberty you to be given, but you've rejected them. Meaning instead of standing with Jesus before God, you'll stand before God and be judged according to now your failed attempt at self-justification using the law. Now, while many of us assume that the people we once knew to be saved, who have more recently walked away from their faith. And you know those people, right? That you were in church with, that you'd be like, man, that person was saved. That person was walking with Jesus. That person, like, like we went on mission trips together and, and we st- had Bible studies together, but now have nothing to do with Christ. You know those people. We all have examples of those people who at one point we would be like totally a Christian. And now we'd be like, there's nothing Christ-like there, man. And that reality, that context, that tough dynamic, most of us default to this. Well, I guess they were never a Christian, maybe, to begin with. I, like, that's the only way we can parse or kind of wrap our brain around that. And yet, and you can chew on this on your own, Paul is clearly providing this specific warning to a group of Christians, or at least a group of people that Paul's convinced are Christians, For we, verse 5, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. This phrase, the hope of righteousness, like what is that? Like the word hope could better be translated as expectation in the original language. So the question's kind of better posed, what is the, once again, a a definite article, what is the expectation of our righteousness, of your righteousness? Is the expectation of you being made right with God heaven? Is that the expectation? No, it's, it's not. It's not. Heaven is not the expectation of your righteousness. Heaven is the result of your righteousness. Is the expectation of your righteousness a relationship with Jesus? No. Christ is the reason of your righteousness. Is it justification? No. Justification is the mechanism behind our righteousness. Okay, so what is it? What is the expectation of our righteousness? Understand. The expectation of our right position before God provided through God's grace Alone and not our merit. It's that this standing will yield, it will produce, it will have a byproduct in my life of righteous living. That is the expectation that I can begin to to live a godly life, that I can live a holy life. That's the expectation which appears like in line with everything Paul's been saying. Because this expectation, in context, it's not something we're to be pursuing. It's not something we're to be working for. It's not even something, for that matter, we're supposed to be focused upon, but it is instead something the believer, according to Paul here, is to be patiently waiting to see accomplished, how? He says it, through the Spirit. So this expectation, how is it fulfilled? Through the Spirit. Paul continues, look. For in Christ Jesus, neither, that word neither, probably better translated, and not, circumcision or uncircumcision avails anything. The, the word avails. In the Greek, it means to be strong or to have power. In regards to the manifestation of this expectation, righteous living, the hope of righteousness, Paul is in this passage affirming something so central and so key. The way you live a righteous life, the power or literally the availing by which you live a righteous life, it comes through you? No. It comes in Christ Jesus. Not in circumcision, what I do or uncircumcision, what I don't do, but by faith working through love. That's how you live a godly life and it's radical. For Paul is saying the power for righteous living, it manifests itself in my life by faith. Faith in what? Faith in faith? No, faith in a person, faith in a savior, faith in Jesus working through love for what? For Jesus. Note, love for Jesus. You know, that also doesn't originate with you. In 1 John 4, verse 19, we're told that we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Once again, love is not a work. It's a response to a work. It's a reaction to God's love. I love him because, man, how, how can I not? Because of the incredible amount of love he's demonstrated towards me. Like, understand, and this is the key. How do we live a righteous life? How is that accomplished? What is the essence of that? How, is that? how does that work forth? It's not in me. It's through the Spirit, by faith in Jesus, working through love for Jesus. You know, love, it's interesting. By the very fact that it's a verb, love is never content to remain static and is always determined to be active. Love responds. Once again, this is what makes that whole Grace, so I can do anything I want to do, approach to the gospel such a distortion, such a warping. While grace frees me to do what I want to do, it also floods my heart with a love for God that actively wants to respond to that favor, respond to that pleasure. Because grace changes my heart, because grace transforms my motivation, grace naturally changes my behavior. Thus, if your behavior is not changing, have your desires changed and do you actually understand grace or God's love? This is why James writes, faith without works is dead. It often gets twisted. Like James is not championing the notion that works be added to faith. Rather, James is simply advocating a faith that works. That works to do what? To produce something out of my life that is godly, that is holy, that is redeemed, that is sanctified. Martin Luther said, This grace of God is very great, strong, mighty, and active thing. It does not lie asleep in the soul. Grace hears, it leads, it drives, it draws, it changes, it works all in man and lets itself be distinctly felt and experienced. It is hidden, but its works are evident. Which then explains what Paul says next, verse 7. And this is where we'll stop. He says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You ran well. Like when Paul had left these Galatians, they were fine. They were rocking and rolling, ripping and roaring. They were doing great. And yet something had stopped their progress. Paul asked them, who hindered you? Like, so he introduced you, you were running well. Who hindered you? That word hindered. It means to cut into your lane, literally to trip you up. You were running great. Who tripped you up from obeying the truth? You see, someone had infiltrated these churches in Galatia. Someone was there teaching this persuasion, or more specifically, in the original language, this treacherous or deceptive persuasion. They were teaching this thing that ran totally contrary to the person and the work of Jesus, quote, him who calls you. And what was the persuasion? We'll just reiterate it. We've mentioned it before. The persuasion were these three gospel distortions of grace and do these things, or grace but don't do these things, or grace so I can do anything, as opposed to it just being grace, period. Enjoying grace. Friend, both legalism and licentiousness will rob you of the power of God's transforming grace. These things will take a person who's been set free to enjoy their relationship with God and it will reenslave them to the resulting bondage of religion or the misconception of self-rule. But notice, and this is important because this begins to kind of transition us. What was the persuasion hindering them from doing? And this is fascinating to me. Paul says, who hindered you from what? From obeying the truth. Obedience. <laughs> Because what do people rocking with grace are often accused of? Not being concerned with obeying God. Not being concerned with obedience. Paul's whole deal is I'm dealing with obedience, but how I'm obedient. The manifestation that is love and not a work. It's a response and not something I'm trying to earn. Understand, when your motivation for righteous living becomes anything other than a reciprocating love for God, your spiritual life will be hindered. That's what Paul's saying. A warning within this passage. The underlying reason Paul is commanding you and I to stand firm and the liberty by which Christ has made us free is that it doesn't take much to knock us off course. It doesn't take much, friend, for you to be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. It doesn't take much for you to be hindered from obeying the truth. Paul says a little leaven is all that's needed to leaven the whole lump. Paul's using a cooking term. A little bit of corruption is needed and the dough for it to rise. Just a little, you don't need a lot. Just a little will take it over. Just a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. Just a little. His point is that a little corruption in our thinking has the uncanny ability to corrupt everything. <laughs> Your yard might have a little kudzu, but if you don't drastically deal with that and stand firm against it, it will take over everything. A little bit is all that's needed to spread, to corrupt, to corrode. Paul's whole point here is that legalism is not a trivial thing. It's not a little thing. Legalism must be resisted at all costs for it will rob you of liberty and return you to bondage. It will take what Jesus did on the cross for you and make it for you of no profit. It'll place you back under the obligation of the law. How frustrating. Legalism, you should stand firm against it for it will violate and limit the work of God's spirit in your life by removing your love for God as being the primary driver. Instead of enjoying his love for me, I'm trying to earn his love. And that's not a healthy motivator. And how does it accomplish all of these things? Circumcision, it illustrates that legalism vacates Jesus. This is why it's so dangerous. It's why it must be resisted. It's why you must stand firm against it is it removes Jesus from the only proper role he wants in your life. And that is savior. If you reach this con- conclusion that Jesus is my, my best friend, my BFF, or he my Lord, my key, all those things, that's cool. But the central place Jesus needs to occupy in your life is a savior. Because without it, everything else is a waste of our time.